Acts chapter 24, verse 21. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. That's Paul speaking. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion for him, Paul, to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing or reasoning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. And said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Fathers, we consider this passage yet again. I pray for fresh insight. I pray, Father, for the anointing of Your Holy Spirit on Your Word this morning and through Your Word and in Your Word as You seek to get Your Word into our hearts. Lord, here we are on the verge of this new year. And while it is not new to You, it is for us and it is a time that we often think about resetting and rethinking our position in life, where we are, where we're headed. May that not be lost on us, Father, as we study Your Word this morning. And I pray You would encourage us and exhort us, comfort us, and convict us, Father. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul wrote that, could write that 2,000 years ago because Jesus had died. He had resurrected. He had ascended. He had done all that was necessary to provide salvation For humanity. And so Paul could very truly say, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. But here we are, and with shouts of Happy New Year still hanging in the air, from Times Square to the Space Needle, as that Happy New Year and that thought of reset and rethinking where we are hits so many people, please understand that now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow, it's not next week or next year, it is now. Now, how do you hear that? The message from Paul, what what he wrote. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ, and he said, now is the day of salvation. Do you hear that as an ambassador? Many do, many will. 
here at the bridge this morning. We are ambassadors for Christ. And as ambassadors, we need to hear that. That now is the day of salvation. But maybe you're not an ambassador for Christ. Maybe you're a recipient of the ambassadorial message. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Or perhaps as an ambassador, you know someone who needs to hear it for the first time. This is an urgent message. And it is more urgent this Sunday than it was last Sunday. More urgent this Sunday than it was two weeks ago. It becomes ever more urgent every day that passes in our lives. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And Paul lived every day like that. That is from the point where he accepted Jesus himself. Where he did not delay. Where he got up and was baptized calling on the name of the Lord. From that day forward, we see an apostle who is an ambassador. We see Paul concerned with the things of the Lord, preaching the gospel of Jesus wherever he went. But we also see something else in Paul. We see that as an ambassador, as any ambassador would know, while he represented the will of his leader, he could not circumvent the will of the listener. We understand that, don't we? As an ambassador myself, and in fact, every time I open up God's Word to teach, I know I can present to you the will of our leader. What I cannot do is circumvent the will of the listener. I wish I could, to be honest. I wish I had the power to circumvent the will of man. To literally reach into a heart and flip a switch to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I would do it in a heartbeat. Our Father, who has the power to do that, has chosen not to, to be sure that every heart chooses Him on their own. Can you imagine having an audience with Ambassador Paul? I mean, what would that be like? To be among those who sat under his teaching, or perhaps heard his gospel clarion message for the very first time. After hearing his message, how would you respond? Felix gets such an audience. Felix and his wife, Drusilla. You may recall, going back a bit in our study, Felix was the governor of Judea when the Apostle Paul was brought up to Caesarea in chains. And Felix received him there and heard a bit, put him off, heard a bit more, put him off again. Sadly, the governor rejects the ambassador's message by way of delay. At first, in verse 22, the Bible says he put them off. And then we're told in verse 25 that he said, When I find time, I will summon you. I've already done it this year. (laughs) Three days in. There were a lot of things I put off, honestly, until this year. Things that I knew needed to take place, needed to happen, but there was so much going on in the holidays, and maybe you're in the same position. He said, I'm not going to deal with that now, I will deal with that next year. We'll we'll get to that in January, when things quiet down, when things slow down a bit. We all put things off until 2016. Some are still just trying to find time to tackle certain tasks and responsibilities. But whether you're an ambassador for Christ or a recipient of this message for the first time perhaps this morning, the message of the Gospel is the one thing nobody can afford to put off. 
not the ambassador, and not the receiver. We cannot afford to put off the gospel. We have been given this long. And I can tell you with assurance, we don't have much longer. Paul said in Romans 13.11, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, as we saw, Felix had already put off Paul once, and then in verse 24 it says, Some days later Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. Felix the cat and Drusilla Deville. <laughs> Felix was cat-like and she was devilish. And if you think through their lives and watch what took place, what we see is that in the midst of their depravity, God sends the Apostle Paul to give them a chance. To preach to them the truth. To share the message of the Gospel. What they did with it would determine the rest of the story and we'll get there. And I joke a little bit from time to time with names in Scripture. You know that. I like to have a little fun with it. But when I think about Felix and Drusilla, though we can joke with their names, what happened to their lives is no joke at all. And is in fact a very real human tragedy. They were real people in the first century. Just like real people you know in your lives, at the workplace, in your family. People that we know who right now are in a tragic position. Perhaps they haven't even heard the message. And what will you do about that as an ambassador? Well, what Paul did was preach the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. Felix, uh, history gives us his complete name. It was Marcus Antonius Felix. Felix means happy or fortunate. And he thought he was because Felix was at one time a slave of Rome. His brother Pallas sidled up to Claudius the Roman emperor was a friend of Claudius and because of that friendship got Felix out of his bondage and actually got him a governorship over Judea. I make a correction, by the way, about three weeks ago, I believe it was on a Wednesday night, we were talking about this and I mentioned that it was Nero. It wasn't Nero, it was Claudius. And so Claudius is the one who freed Felix and then gave Felix this position of governor of Judea. The Roman historian Tacitus told us about Felix that he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the prerogatives of a king with the spirit of a slave. Meaning, Felix had the mentality of one abused and who now abused his power. This says something about this man Felix. And by deception... And with the help of a magician friend, perhaps, possibly even Simon the Sorcerer, for we know there was a friendship there. With the help of a magician friend, he lured Drusilla away from her first husband. Drusilla the Jewess. Drusilla's name means dew water. Dew water. She was notoriously beautiful. She used her beauty to her advantage like her more promiscuous sister, Berenice. And we studied about Berenice and King Agrippa, that brother-sister kind of skeevy pair who we read about in Acts 25 and 26. But Drusilla became the third wife of Felix and actually his second Drusilla. He was married to a Drusilla before. Apparently he liked the name, so he went for another Drusilla. 
Drusilla's father was Herod Agrippa, who is the same Herod in Acts chapter 12 who had the Apostle James run through with a sword. The same Herod who in Acts chapter 12 ended his life as worm food. Literally. You can read the story. Drusilla's half-brother was King Agrippa, who again, with his sister Berenice, came to hear Paul in Acts 25 and 26. Her great-uncle was Herod the Tetrarch, who beheaded John the Baptist. They're all connected here in this Herodias family. And her grandfather was Herod the Great, the slayer of infants at the time of the birth of Christ. But the Bible tells us, Luke says, Drusilla was a Jewess. Which meant to some degree that she considered herself a Jew, was raised with Jewish understanding, that she understood the teachings of Messiah. And when she heard that the Apostle Paul was brought in, this man who was preaching Jesus, preaching Messiah, and of course knew as everybody knew the story of this recent Jesus, she was intrigued and curious like her husband Felix. So they set up a private meeting with Paul. And he holds nothing back. Paul's in chains. At the mercy, some might think, of Rome. But when he gets a chance to speak, and he does it here with Felix and Drusilla, and he does it in Acts 25 and 26 again with Agrippa and Berenice, he preaches the truth. He doesn't hold back in the slightest. Not a free pastor sitting in front of a church on a Sunday morning with the freedom to preach the Word of God, which uh, apparently I still have. This was a man in chains. And when he stood up to speak, he didn't defend himself. He reasoned the Gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, Are there not some to be found who think the highest object of the minister is to attract the multitude and then to please them? No, my brethren. We must always take our texts so that we may bear upon our hearers with all our might. I like that. You see, I don't have the power to reach into a human heart and flip a switch. But I can bear upon my listeners with all my might. And I intend to. Not just today, but this year. That's a flip flip switch in my heart over the last couple of weeks. God's saying, Rick, it's time to bear down. We're going to. We're going to get into Romans next. We're going to get some Christian doctrine as straightforward and clear as we've ever had. Going through the letters of Paul and the rest of the New Testament. And we will hold nothing back because the days are short. Notice the progression of Paul's teaching in verses 24 and 25. It says that they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he was discussing, or that word, uh, dialogue, dialogue, he was reasoning literally. Righteousness, self-control, <laughs> and the judgment to come. Paul begins in the best way possible. He begins, number one, and we're just going to take Paul's points for our points this morning. He begins with faith in Christ Jesus. That's the best place to start. The rest of Paul's reasoning would flow out of this. It starts with believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. The pinnacle of the message is the paragon 
of Christian faith. That is Jesus Himself. He is always the message. It is always about Him. We are not here to increase the British Christian Fellowship. We are not here to convert people to our system of thought. We are here to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As Paul did, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, in Philippi, Paul and Silas, they said to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he reminds, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It was Paul's singular message. Because Paul knew as the Hebrew writer wrote, Hebrews 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so the message for 2016 is the very same message as it was in A.D. 60. It begins and ends with faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Now, by and large, people don't mind that first part. I mean, who wouldn't be curious about a miracle-working a supernatural phenom who's said to have risen from the dead. There is an appeal of Jesus to people. So don't be afraid to bring Jesus up. Again, rather than preaching your church or your position or your theology, just talk about Jesus. Because people are open to hearing about Him. They're as curious today as Felix and Drew were back in the days of Paul. But Paul wasn't feeding curiosity. That was not his intent. He was teaching faith. And note that. Faith in Christ Jesus. Which as we've said so many times here at the bridge is not mental assent. It's not saying, oh yeah, I acknowledge there's a Jesus who once lived. It's not even saying, oh yeah, I acknowledge there's a Jesus who once lived and He may have something to do with God. I acknowledge that you believe there's a deity related to Jesus. No, faith in Christ Jesus changes the way a person lives their life. Must change the way we live our lives. Otherwise, it's not faith in Christ Jesus. James said in James chapter 2, verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and yet one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Faith in Christ Jesus, and the fruit of that faith in Jesus, is most immediately seen in what comes next, and that is righteousness. Paul began reasoning righteousness. Why? Because righteousness is the revelation of faith in a person's life. And we Christians have missed that in this generation. Oh, maybe not we, but many Christians have. The fact that faith in Jesus must yield the fruit of righteousness. If it doesn't, where's the faith? If my life is not more righteous because of Jesus, and I'm not talking about a pride issue, I'm not talking about being holier than thou. 
But if I am not living more righteous, then where is my faith in Jesus? Do I really believe what I say I believe? Righteousness is the revelation of faith. A faith that is in process. And I will be so bold as to say where there is no righteousness, there is no faith. And I think this may be where Felix and Drusilla begin to shake. Because this couple were far from righteous. And it's interesting that Paul starts to tackle this issue. Righteousness. Who is he talking to? I might think, you might think, oh, these guys are way too sinful to go to the realm of righteousness. Their their lives are way too messed up. Let's not talk about righteousness just yet. We'll get there eventually, maybe. You know, but we got some cleaning up to do here. Paul goes for the throat. Faith in Christ Jesus, reasoning righteousness. Felix and Drusilla knew they weren't righteous. And by the way, everyone who's living in unrighteous life knows they're not righteous. Everyone who is living a sin-soaked life knows that's the life that they're living. Knows they've chosen to live that way. There wasn't a single person who got drunk on New Year's Eve who didn't know they were going to. And then woke up the next morning knowing that's what they did. Righteousness. It's a revelation of faith. But when a person is not righteous, they have no faith. And it's not that a person, it's not even that Felix and Drusilla couldn't be made right. They could. They just chose not to be. Felix and Drusilla got in their own way where righteousness is concerned. I was awake all night last night. I'll just confess to you. So if I pass out or fall asleep during the sermon, it may be a first here. Just wake me back up. Can you imagine that? A church where the pastor falls asleep during his own sermon? I was. I was awake all night long. I looked at the clock at 11.30, looked at the clock at 12, looked at the clock at 1, 1 1.32, 2.33. It was awful. Until I finally realized God was saying, excuse me, (laughs) just need a moment of your time. And I, I was thinking all night long. I was thinking about this morning and about the teaching before us. And it's not that this teaching is any more or less important than any other. But thinking about what it really means to be righteous. And where are we with all of this? And understanding that that righteousness, it, it means a transformation. It means a changed nature that is radically different from who I was before. And brothers and sisters, precious fellowship, please understand, I think the word of the Lord for us right now today is this church needs to be more righteous. This fellowship needs to start pursuing righteousness like never before. That this year, if we are struggling with the issue of righteousness, and that's very simply being right with God, that now He is calling upon those who have faith to be a people who are righteous and to reject the culture of this world. And to say once and for all, we will not act like we used to act. We will not be who we used to be. We will not wear the shoes we used to wear. We are a people made righteous by Jesus Christ. Let's live that way. And stop playing around. As though we're people of the culture rather than ambassadors to the culture. How might that work? For a bad dude like Felix, and again, he was a messed up guy. And then Drusilla... 
This self-centered woman. These two were quite a pair. And yet Paul is preaching righteousness to them. What does that look like? How does it work? How do we get there? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Get that. You are in Christ Jesus is righteous. Do we have any question about that? Right? He is perfect. He is absolutely righteous. When I put my faith in Christ Jesus, I enter into the person of Christ Jesus. I don't ex- even exactly know how that works, other than to know that I am in Him. That as Jesus stands before God, He stands between me and God, and when God looks at me, He looks through Jesus. I'm in Jesus. I'm made righteous by His doing. What part was yours, Rick? Faith. Putting my trust in Jesus. But I am in Jesus who became then righteousness. But Paul goes further than that. Colossians 1.27 He says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this majesty or this mystery among the Gentiles which is, get this, Christ in you. Wait a minute, I thought it was I'm in Christ. You are. And Christ is in you. This is getting profound. Because not only am I in Him covered by Christ, wearing and bearing the righteousness that is in Christ, but Christ is in me, bringing His righteousness to bear in my heart. In my life. And Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3 verse 1, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, that's how righteousness works. That's where we begin. That's how it starts. And the truth is because I am made righteous in Christ and Christ in me, I now can start to pursue righteousness with a bit of confidence. Hey, look, I get it. I'm not a perfect man. I understand. I have flaws. I understand. I still sin. (laughs) Yesterday. Cheryl and I were gone for a couple of days over New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. We came back home and Anna Marie had been in charge of the kids. She did a phenomenal job. And we got home and Cheryl was talking to David and said, Were you good for Anna Marie? Did you obey Anna Marie? David, our 7-year-old. Anna Marie, our 17-year-old. And David said, Yeah, I, I, was, I was good for Anna Marie yesterday. <laughs> Cheryl said, What about today? And he goes... Today was a hard day. I was sassy all day long. And she said, well, did you apologize to your sister? He said, yeah, I apologized. And then I just was sassy all over again. Why am I like that, Mom? It was the funniest conversation. David's seven years old and he knows that we have a sin nature. We struggle with it. But because... Christ is in me and I am in Christ. I now have the ability to begin to step forward step by step in righteousness. I can choose to be righteous because He is in me as righteous and I am in Him who is righteous. Do you understand this? We can make the choice. I'm going to walk righteously. And when I fall down, I'm going to get up, get back into Christ and walk more. I'm not going to give up on this. I'm not going to be one of those Christians who says, yeah, I got the salvation and the grace thing going on, but my life's just not really, you know, salvageable in that area. 
Or the Christian who says, I don't need to worry about it, I have grace. I'm fine. I can do whatever I want. No, righteousness is the revelation of your faith. And if there is no righteousness, there is no faith. Some Christians still don't get this. This is one of the heartbreaking things. Les can tell you, Brian, Jake, they can tell you one of the heartbreaking things about ministry is to constantly see people who claim Christ but do not live that way. And you know what the real issue is? It's not even you or me. I still believe even a person who's messed up can be saved by grace. I'm a prime example of that. I believe even a person who struggles along and stumbles along through life, if they have faith in Jesus, though they may not be righteous in their own behavior, can still be saved. The problem is, what about those who are going to hell who know you? Or who know me? Am I robbing someone else of their chance for salvation because I refuse to pursue righteousness? It's about a whole lot more than me, gang. It's about a whole lot more than you. We gotta stop looking back like Lot's wife. As Jake talked about last week, I thought he did a beautiful job. We gotta stop looking over our shoulders because people who look over their shoulders plow crooked lines, and crooked lines are hard to follow. And Jesus said, Luke 9.62, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's 2016. Are you looking back? I was thinking that we like to hit the reset button. I don't want to hit the reset button today. Because I don't want to go back and be reset to what I was last year. I want to hit fast forward. I want to move on in my faith. Are you looking back to the world or are you looking forward to the kingdom Paul says do not be conformed to this world Romans 12 2 but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect not the reset button the renew button that makes me new all over again but recognize this If we are not those who pursue righteousness, we will be of no value as ambassadors. If we're wandering crooked lives, we'll be difficult to follow. We'll be no different than every other citizen of this world. Faith in Christ Jesus, Paul preached, and then he reasoned righteousness, which itself leads to the third point. I love this. He's talking to Felix and Drusilla. (laughs) Self-control. Are you kidding me? Self-control to this Roman and his third wife? Self-control? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, you could say righteousness. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. Moral excellence, righteousness, develops knowledge that leads to self-control. And this would be an issue for Felix and Drusilla. The Greek word there is enkriteia. And enkriteia, self-control, is literally temperance. Apply temperance to your life. Are you temperance? Are you self-controlled? We live in a culture today that is so much like Rome, it's stunning. 
in so many different ways. Forty years ago, it wasn't as much like Rome as it is today. But more and more, we are looking like that Rome of the first century. A culture that celebrates indulgence and excess. That's what Rome did. Cheryl was at Safeway at noon on New Year's Eve. Not a good time to go to the store. And she came up to the counter buying juice for the kids to bring home. And she said she looked around and the alcohol was just unbelievable. On all the counters and all the aisles. And she said to the, to the attendant there working in the, in the, uh, at the counter, she said, you guys sold a lot of, a lot of booze today? And this is, this is noon, right? She said, you have no idea. It has been just flowing out of this place. I don't think I, she said, I don't think I've ever sold as much alcohol as we have in the first couple of hours of our store being open today on New Year's Eve. Do we live in a culture of excess? And I know, I, I get it. I know there's some Christians who say, well, I bought alcohol on morning of New Year's Eve. It's no big deal. Rick, I know you got your alcohol thing. You're a pastor, so you have to. I know you've preached about that before. Whatever. That's your choice. I make my own choice. Well, that's fantastic. Righteousness. A whole lot easier to be righteous when we're sober. It's a whole lot more difficult to be righteous when we're even a little buzzed. And you make your choice. But it it caught my attention, Cheryl, mentioning that because I had just read a quote from Jennifer Lawrence of The Hunger Games, you know, the actress Jennifer Lawrence. She said, I hate New Year's Eve. Why do you hate New Year's Eve? I always end up drunk and disappointed. Well, there's a role model for you. I always end up drunk and disappointed. Notice the combination. She's right on. Drunk and disappointed. Never gets you where you think it's going to get you. Why does she end up drunk and disappointed? Why is our culture so indulgent and so excessive? Because the flesh wants feeding. Self-control, Paul preached. The natural man, the natural woman does not want self-control. But you know what? Self-control is not a natural thing. Self-control is spiritual. That's something we ask the Spirit to do in us, to work in us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's number nine on the list. Self-control. Paul says against such things, there is no law. In other words, against the fruit of the Spirit, a law is unnecessary because when I'm walking in the Spirit and I'm bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the law is a done deal. The law is kept. I don't need a law. Self-control is something the Spirit does when Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, you run a different race. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know... That those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Russell Wilson understands this. Seahawks, of course, are playing today, Cardinals. He's talking about how the Hawks were going out to Arizona, and they were going to go a day early. Pete Carroll asked the team, can we go a day early? I want you guys out there. I want you to kind of acclimate, and I want you to have a little time to work out and get some, some good, healthy food in you and, and get our minds centered on the game today where we're going to whip the Cardinals. <laughs> y- you can pray, right? <laughs> so they went out there earlier to exercise self-control as athletes. Russell Wilson was talking about it. We're preparing our bodies. We're preparing our minds for the game that is before us today. Self-control. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 4, just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4. Self-control. Listen to how Peter describes this. And Peter's a good one to talk about self-control because he didn't always have it. He says in verse 3 of 1 Peter 4, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Any of you experience that? You've had a changed life and the people you used to run with are surprised that you're no longer doing the things that you did before and they start to ridicule you a bit for it. Oh, come on. We all got drunk last New Year's Eve. Why not this year? We all used to party together. What's your problem? Come on, man. Peter's addressing that. He says they malign you. Stop running with them. Don't run with the world. Get out of the human race. Run with self-control. There are no winners in the human race, only disappointment and something else. And that's verse 5. They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. you got two things if you want to live the course of the world, if you want to run the race of this culture and of this world. you got two things ahead of you, disappointment and judgment. You will face both. And that's Paul's final point to Felix and Drusilla after covering faith in Christ and righteousness and self-control and these things are evidence of that faith in Christ. He also talks about, note this, the judgment to come. The judgment to come back in Acts chapter 24. The judgment to come. Not just a vague judgment out there, but the judgment that was coming like a juggernaut on the way. And anyone who intends to run on their own merit, to run the course of this world, understand, must give a complete accounting of how they lived. You can do that. Everybody has the right to make that choice. I'm just going to stand up before God as a good person. Okay. But here's how it's going to go down. Bible already tells us. Hebrews 4.13 There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That is, with whom we must give an account. 
No creature is hidden. It says all things are open. That Greek word open is flayed open like a dead animal. Like an animal that's been shot, a deer that's been hunted. Will be flayed open and hung up to let the blood dry out. The Hebrew writer says, that's what you're like before God. You're flayed open. There's nothing hidden. He sees to the very insides everything going on in your life. It's just the way it is. There's nothing that won't be open. And then he says, laid bare, which is literally naked. We stand naked before God, and if we want to defend ourselves, that's the position we're in. Okay. Here are the good things I've done. Here are the bad. Now, if you're a Muslim, you just think as long as the good outweighs the bad, I should be okay. Although, Allah can choose to send you to hell anyway, so there's really no hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a great hope. That you're not standing there naked before God trying to prove your righteousness. Trying to prove that you were just barely good enough to get into heaven. The judgment to come, people ignore it. Until there's a, a death in the family and a funeral. Or until something happens that, that reminds us how fragile human life is. But how quickly do we get right back to ignoring the judgment to come? Some want to put it off as long as possible, but it is unavoidable. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. And that's the deal. And it's a terrifying thought. The harsh reality of judgment intrudes upon our ignorance. And really messes up our bliss. And sometimes, gang, it is so with ambassadors of Christ as well. You see, we are being subtly trained in this culture not to intrude. Not to talk about things like we're talking about this morning. Don't go there. Because if you do, you're intolerant. If you start talking about faith in Christ, and then you roll into righteousness, and then self-control, and then the judgment to come, well, you're just among those bigoted right-wingers. You're one of those fundamentalists. You can't talk like that. You can't speak those words. You can't share that. And in our culture, teaching on judgment is intolerant, it's insensitive, and it is unloving. You know what Jake tells me is one of our teenagers' biggest fears as as he talks with them on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays nights. He shared this with me more than once. One of their biggest fears is being seen as judgmental by their peers. And when Jake talks to our teenagers about sharing the gospel, that's what comes back so often is, but if I do that, they're going to think I'm fill in the blank, a bigot, intolerant, uncaring. Well, let me ask you this. Was Paul judgmental? Some would say he was. He certainly doesn't fit the toned down, scaled back, seeker sensitive, politically correct church. That seems to pervade the world today. But listen, you may look at Paul and say, he was just too intense. Okay, look at Jesus, the founder of our faith. 
Jesus Christ taught more about judgment and hell than anyone else in Scripture. Did you know that? The same Jesus that when we first start talking about faith in Jesus, people will listen because, oh, Jesus is cool. He's my man. And He taught more about judgment and hell than anybody else. Why? Because He loved us more than anybody else. And that's the reality in sharing these things. It comes from a heart of love. It comes from a heart that says, I don't want to see you barrel off the cliff in blindness. I would rather warn you ahead of time what's coming so that you don't have to take the judgment to come. Rather than you you can have the judgment that took place 2,000 years ago on a wooden cross at Calvary. That is to me one of the most remarkable things about our faith. Is that 2,000 years ago I was judged and saved. Because Jesus was judged and found perfect. He took my place. And the choice is yours. The choice is mine to have faith in Jesus. A faith that produces righteousness and self-control and leaves zero fear, no fear for the judgment to come. You see, as John says, perfect love casts out fear. And he's talking about fear of judgment when he says that. No fear of the judgment to come. Well, what was the result of the ambassador Paul's address? Look at verse 25. Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. Felix was trembling in his toga. Felix was scared. I mean, literally shaking. You Bible students know this. The word here, frightened, emphobus, means to tremble with fear. That same word, emphobus, was used in Scripture and in other places in Greek language to describe earthquakes. Did you feel the emphobus the other night? See, I did. I'm talking about the literal one, that little earthquake that hit. I was in bed around 11.30 p.m. I actually was falling asleep when the room began to shake. Our bed began to shake. It was over fast. But I can tell you something. I was wide awake for about an hour after that waiting for the next tremor. And I wonder how many people are living life that way today. Just waiting for the next tremor. Wide awake, trembling themselves in fear. My family doesn't handle earthquakes the best. Ask, ask Sharon. I probably shouldn't go into this because she's sitting right there in the back. And, and I'd really hate to embarrass her. She has no idea what to do in an earthquake. I'm just saying. Mom, it's the door frame. Just go for the door frame. We'll take care of everything else, okay? What do you do? You tremble, and then you tremble. And you wait to see if there's going to be an aftershock. And people do that, tossing and turning from day to day, waiting for the next terrifying reminder that judgment is coming. And Felix didn't want to hear it. It scared him to hear this. You know, two men trembled in the book of Acts. Two men literally shook with fear. One was a jailer in Philippi. He was trembling. Acts 16.29 tells us. 
he was trembling with conviction. What shall I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, you and all your household, and you will be saved. And he was both convicted and converted that very night. The second person to tremble is Felix, who was also convicted but procrastinated. Said to Paul, when I find time, I will summon you. He does what so many people do, and that is put off the inevitable for another day. And every time, think about this, every time the inevitable is put off, it is easier to put off. Luke chapter 4 verse 13 tells us when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. The devil's a master of time. He uses time to his advantage. Satan is a twister of time. He'll use it to tempt when, when least expected. Coming back around to surprise you at an opportune time, a moment that he thinks he can catch you off guard. But he'll also do, listen, he'll also do nothing at all. And just let time go by. And continue to do nothing for one simple purpose. To make you think, to make me think, we've got all the time in the world. There's no hurry. There's no rush. And Felix, you'll note, puts off Paul not once, not twice, but multiple times. When I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Over and over, he brought Paul in. Why? Because he thought maybe he could make a little money. Hey, Paul, tell your friends. I know they want to get you out of prison. Maybe we can work a deal here. Looking for a little bribe money? He never got it out of Paul. But what catches my attention is that he sent for him quite often. Over and over and over and over. Looking for a little bit of kickback. And you know what? Every time he sent Paul away, it got easier to send Paul away. Every time he delayed, it was easier to delay. And you know what happens when people put off Jesus? The longer the delay, the harder the heart. I don't even have to tell you this, but you all know statistics point to the age of 18. That the vast majority of people, who, and it's something like 85%, of people who come to faith in Christ Jesus come to faith before the age of 18. After that, the likelihood nosedives. It's not that people can't come to faith later in life. And if you've come to faith in Jesus later in life, praise the Lord, His grace got you. His love got through. And I believe it's powerful enough to break through the hardest of hearts. But it gets easier and easier to put off Jesus the more we put off Jesus. The more you say no to Him, the harder it is to say yes to Him. James said in James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor 
that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. My times are in His hands. And of course, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, the, the Spirit, and listen to this, I know you've heard this, listen again. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, and it's a picture of a conscience that no longer works. It's been fried. Like a computer hard drive, it's been fried and cannot function anymore. The conscience is no good even to direct you or to to prod you in any, any certain direction. But know what Paul says. He says it happens to those who begin paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. One of the most deceitful doctrines of demons is the doctrine of delay. The story is told, it's a parable really, of a demonic conference being held. Demons are there with Satan and they're all gathered together figuring out how best to mess up this world. How best to dissuade people from following Jesus. And one little demon raises his hand and says, Tell them there's no heaven. Satan says, Oh no, that's no good. They all know. God said eternity in their hearts. They know there's a heaven. Another little demon's hand goes up. Hey, tell them there's no hell. Now that's no good either. No, because ultimately if they think it through, they know a God of love, if that love is rejected, what's the alternative? Now, that's not going to work. And another demon said, tell them there's no hurry. Satan said, yeah, that'll work. A master of twisting time. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Yes, his name is Porcius. Look it up. It means pig. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Really. Paul was not the one left in prison, my friends. Felix was. Drusilla was. Now, as Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. Felix, his tenure in Judea was riddled with crime. He was a horrible governor. Didn't handle things well at all. And at one point, a riot broke out right there in Caesarea between Greeks and Jews. Fighting in the streets, battling each other. And when the Greeks got the better of the Jews, Felix looked the other way and gave them free reign to plunder, rape, and kill the Jewish population in Caesarea. After this event happened, word reached Caesar up in Rome, and he recalled Felix back to Rome. Felix left there, left Caesarea, leaving Paul in prison. Why? He's trying to curry favor with the Jews who he had just allowed to be so tormented by the Greeks. So he leaves Paul in prison. Well, maybe this will help when he has to go up before the Caesar. Doesn't work. He ends up stripped of his office. He ends up (laughs) drunk and disappointed. I don't know if he was drunk, but certainly disappointed. 
And he lived out the rest of his days in disgrace and disappointment and obscurity. That's what happened to Felix. What about Drusilla? Twenty years later, she and her son were shopping in a quaint European city known as Pompeii. When Mount Vesuvius erupted and she was incinerated in the lava flow. She's one of two famous or known people that were incinerated in in that flow. Pliny the Elder was the other one. And Drusilla. She died in the flames. Felix and Drusilla are a picture for us this morning of the prison of delay. Delay is in and of itself a prison. It binds people, it chains people, it holds them back. You know people right now, ambassadors, I'm speaking to ambassadors, you know people who are in the prison of delay being held captive by the enemy. We are sent as ambassadors to set them free. Paul's own response was so different than that of Felix. Paul, who was in his own prison, living out difficult days, kicking against the goads, when another ambassador, one Ananias, was sent to Paul, there in Damascus, in Acts 22.16, he says to Paul, Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, we're told immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized immediately. Paul set free by the message of the gospel through faith in Christ Jesus that would yield righteousness and self-control in Paul's life, saving him from the judgment to come and making him an ambassador of Christ to save people from the judgment to come. Delay is its own prison. And it is the most foolish response a person can give to Jesus. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. As we stand and John's coming up to lead us in a song, I want to read you a proverb. And we'll let this proverb close out our thoughts on this this morning. Wisdom is speaking. Wisdom is personified. Wisdom is the Holy Spirit, by the way. And so the Spirit says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, just listen to this. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread 
of evil. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Oh God, may this not be another first sermon of the new year. Holy Father, I pray that Your words, Father, will land with conviction and exhortation in the heart of every ambassador who walks through the door this morning. I pray, Father, if there is even one recipient of the Gospel that today will be the acceptable day, the day of their salvation. We pray, Father, that You will put a burden of urgency on our hearts, that we will not be a people of procrastination and delay. Father, may we take the Gospel to the very gates of hell, which will not prevail against Your church. May we stand strong and firm with love and grace and a compassion that is so great we are willing to talk about these things. And we pray, Father, for every opportunity to share Jesus. May we not miss a one. In Jesus' name, Amen.